Please pray with me as I give the prayer of illumination. O oh God, lover of humanity, joy of creation, we are stewards of all that you have made. Pour out your spirit on us that we may hear your ancient words in a new key. May your words show us the way of the righteous. Inspire us to sing your praise in every land and with every generation and inspire us to dedicate our lives and all that we have been given to your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is found on page 479 of the Pew Bibles, if you wish to follow, as I read Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. I chose Psalm 1 to be our Old Testament reading uh, this morning for a simple reason. It's a, great, it's a great passage, but what might not be evident in the English is that Psalm describes basically two paths. There is a path of scoffers, which is not clearly, which is clearly not the right path, and then the other path is for those who are happy. Those who are happy delight in the in scripture delight in the law of the lord and on his law they meditate day and night the hebrew word for meditate is hagah and another translation of that word is to imagine so those who are happy use their imaginations to focus on god's story that is there in the psalms and it is certainly in the New Testament, including our New Testament lesson this morning, which comes from the letter to the Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 14 through 21. So listen now for the word of God to the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, 
I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The address that Martin Luther King Jr. delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 27, 1963, I think many would agree is one of the most famous speeches in history. And we call it a speech, but I've always thought it felt more like a sermon. King drew heavily on images from the prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Amos, claiming that he hoped, he claimed that hope that justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And he looked ahead like Isaiah did to the day when the rough places would be plain and the crooked places would be made straight, when the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all flesh would see it together. And the phrase that held it all together then and now remains the popular title by which this sermon is still known today. I have a dream. This dream, this vision that captured the imagination of Martin Luther King Jr., was an image of the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners sitting down together at the table of brotherhood. It was an image in King's mind of his own children living in a nation where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when he dreamed that dream, those things were not reality. They did not exist in the world. So at the time of his famous speech, the dream was a figment of King's imagination. It's important to say, however, that imagination in that case was not an act of make-believe or an exercise in childish folly. It was not frivolous daydreaming. It was instead the fruit of a very spiritual discipline an intentional effort to see the world not for what it was, but for what it could be and what it should be. With faith and hope, King imagined the world that God describes in Scripture, and without that imagination, there would have been no dream. I would actually go as far as to say that without imagination, we cannot truly have faith. 
We read in Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. If everything about God was obvious, was readily seen, then faith would be a mere exercise of the senses. But the life of faith is lived in places that cannot be seen, except in rare instances. We do not see the meek inheriting the earth, but we hold to that vision by faith. The way of the cross seems like foolishness to the eyes and ears of the world, but in faith we cling to the wisdom of Christ anyway. In order to pick up our own crosses and follow Christ, we must imagine a victory of hope and love, an end result that we can rarely see. I think that's why Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher and theologian, placed tremendous importance upon the imagination. In fact, he believed that our lives are determined by just two things, and the first thing is the imagination. Imagination is a power that sets us apart from every other living thing. Our imagination, Kierkegaard wrote, gives us wings that can elevate our existence. The imagination opens us to new and exciting possibilities. To make his point, he asked his readers in one of his books to imagine a young boy. Like all young people, he wrote, that boy that we would imagine forms images in his mind of what life should be or could be. That image in his mind is an ideal. It has perfection to it. It may be the image of a perfect parent, a perfect love, a perfect day, a perfect place. He becomes infatuated with this image, Kierkegaard writes. It becomes his love, his inspiration, For him, his more perfect, more ideal self. And he does not abandon it even in sleep, this image that makes him sleepless. Listen to how Kierkegaard describes what happens to this boy who has this image of perfection in his mind. He walks like a dreamer. And yet one can see by the fire and flame in his eyes that he is wide awake. He walks like a stranger. And yet he seems to be at home. For through the imagination, he is always at home with this image, which he desires to resemble. And just as it so beautifully happens with lovers that they begin to resemble each other, so the young man is transformed in likeness to this image, which impresses itself or imprints itself on all his thought and on every utterance by him. In other words, the longer the boy fixes his gaze upon that mental image of something good and perfect, the more his life becomes like it. 
The dream impresses itself upon him, onto his thoughts and onto his actions. The image begins to transform who he is. Now, unfortunately, the boy quickly learns that life is not perfect. Reality sets in, and he begins to understand that the perfect image in his imagination certainly does not exist in the world and may actually be much farther away than he ever dreamed possible. And this is where the second basic determinant of our existence comes into play, as Kierkegaard would say. That, el- that element is the will. Our ability to imagine a more perfect world, Kierkegaard argues, must be paired with a conviction and a will that will stubbornly hold on to that dream and vision and then live it into actuality. The will to make that ideal image real through grit and determination and toil and sweat. There's a legend that you may have heard about a soldier in Vietnam who was captured and held prisoner for years in a tiny jungle cell. It was a favorite story of motivational speaker Zig Ziglar. This prisoner kept his sanity by playing a round of golf in his mind every single day. He would envision in his mind the view down the fairway, envision a perfect backswing, envision a perfect follow-through. He held no club in his hand, obviously, but he would swing his body as if he did have one. And according to the legend, when he is finally released and he returns home, he pretty quickly goes out to his home golf club and he discovers miraculously that he has taken 20 strokes off of his average without ever picking up a golf club. He had been an average golfer at best, but through the power of his imagination, he had somehow become an excellent golfer. Now this has traveled through, you know, the cultural ethos enough that sometimes he makes a hole-in-one, you know, sometimes he wins the club championship. I don't know if this is true or not true, but the power of visualization has been proven to be true time and time again. Sports psychologist Terry Orlick in his book, The Pursuit of Excellence, or In Pursuit of Excellence, describes an Olympic figure skater who was having difficulty mastering a particular move. And after the psychologist encouraged her to visualize a successful jump, to mentally see herself landing it flawlessly again and again, she did begin landing that jump in practice. And within two weeks, Orlick says she was sticking that jump with consistency and with beauty. Similar success was found by Canadian diving champion Sylvie Bernier, who was mentally, who mentally practiced all 10 of her performance dives in her head every night right before she went to sleep. I got to the point, she said, where I could feel myself on the board doing a perfect dive, and I could hear the crowd yelling at the Olympics. She kept that image in her mind, and she worked, and she worked, and she did end up hearing that Olympic crowd yell for her when she won the gold medal at the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. 
I think Kierkegaard is making the exact same point about our spiritual lives, our lives of faith. He believed that the spiritual imagination, coupled with a stubborn and determined will, that those two things working together have the power to elevate us and give us wings and make us better. Martin Luther King Jr. is a perfect example. King dared to imagine what God is talking about when God describes justice rolling down like waters. He dared to imagine what it would look like to care for the widow and the orphan and to respect the alien in our midst. He dared to dream of a world in which we really do love one another as Christ has loved us. And King's imagination gave him a vision of how white folks and black folks might live together, might treat each other, a vision of how we might live in peace and not resort to violence, a vision of a better and a more faithful world. He dreamed that dream, but he did more than that. He held on to that dream with grit and determination, even when the world was saying that that dream was impossible and folly and ridiculous. He held on to that dream, and he worked to make that dream a reality with will and a steadfast commitment. And his imagination and will combined to change the world. The writer James Baldwin, who was present with King on that day at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, thought back later in his life about the powerful impact that the I Have a Dream speech had on him and on all of those who were lucky enough to hear that sermon and speech. King's words, Baldwin said, made it seem that we stood on a height we could see our inheritance. It made us believe, he said, perhaps we could make the kingdom real. On that day, King's dream became the dream of many, and soon they would find the same kind of will, too. Thousands would join King in the dangerous work of challenging racism and hatred. They too dared to imagine a better world, and they too would face tear gas and whips and clubs and bullets with a steadfast determination to make that mental image of justice and peace and love a reality in the world. And all of this may seem very lofty to us and very distant to us and very far away from wherever we may be right now. But I assure you that these spiritual principles of faith are eminently relevant here and now. Because I know that all of you have dreams of something better. It may be a relationship that you wish was healthier. It may be a career that you wish was moving in a better direction. It may be a physical goal that you have set for yourself. Whatever it is, I know that you can imagine a more perfect way. And you can see that vision in your mind. 
And whatever that vision may be for you, I hope and pray that your life of faith is a part of that vision. I hope that you can imagine yourself being closer to Christ, that you can imagine yourself being more committed to following Christ faithfully and more intimately involved with the ministry of the church that Christ created and ordained to be his hands and feet in the world. Deep down, I think we all want these things. All of us, and I do mean all of us, can picture ourselves being and becoming more Christ-like in the way we live. And we may not see that happening in our lives right now. But through the eye of a faithful imagination, we do have a vision of what could be for us. After all, faith is the assurance, not of things that we can see, but of things that are hoped for. And it is also the conviction that God, having seen faith in us, will be able to accomplish abundantly far more than anything and everything that we could ask or even imagine. I am inviting you today to let yourself imagine something better for your life and for this church. And I'm also inviting you to go out and make that dream or vision a reality by committing yourselves to the mission of this church with your time and your abilities and your passions and your money. Kierkegaard says we can control our lives, that we need only two things to change our destiny, imagination and will. Imagine the kind of faith you want to have. Imagine the kind of love you want to have. Imagine the kind of relationship that you want to have with the living God. And here's the biggest takeaway of all. You are God's biggest and most precious dream. In the beginning, God dreamed a dream of you and you alone. And it is a dream that involves great and wonderful things. So do not let your imagination be constrained by what you see right now or what you feel right now, or what you think you are capable of right now. Let yourself dream big dreams for yourself, for this church, and for God. And then hold on to that dream and commit yourself to making that dream come true. Amen.